Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and today we're honoring the history of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which took place from August 25th through September 2nd, 1921. The battle was the largest labor uprising in U.S. history, and it took place in the context of the decade-long West Virginia Mine Wars. During that time, miners and their families fought to bring a union, and through it, safer and more just working and living conditions to the southern West Virginia coal fields. By the time the Battle of Blair Mountain took place, West Virginia miners had the paint and Cabin Creek strikes of 1912 in their memories, and the more recent 1920 Matewan massacre. But when Matewan police chief Sid Hatfield, a miner's hero, was shot on the McDowell County Courthouse steps on August 1, 1921, by Baldwin Feltz detectives hired by the coal company, miners took up arms and began gathering by the thousands in Marmette, West Virginia. Estimates of the miners' army's size range from 10,000 to nearly 20,000, but regardless, the armed miners confronted 3,000 lawmen and strike breakers. Federal troops were sent in to back the coal companies, which effectively ended the battle, but not the struggle to unionize the southern West Virginia coal fields. In this episode, we talk with people involved in honoring this history today through the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan and through work to preserve the Blair Mountain Battlefield site itself as a national historic site. We'll also hear audio from the Apple Shop film Nimrod Workman to fit my own category. Nimrod participated in the Battle of Blair Mountain and was a proud Union miner. First, we'll hear from Lou Martin and Catherine Moore of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. My name is Lou Martin, and I live in Daisytown, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour south of Pittsburgh, and I am a uh, professor of history at Chatham University in Pittsburgh. In 2011, a, a group of environmental activists joined with historians to organize a march on Blair Mountain that would recreate the 1921 Miners' March starting in Marmette and going 50 miles south to Blair Mountain. As a West Virginian who was living in Pennsylvania, and as a labor historian, I, I felt that I had to be there, and it was way out of my comfort zone, but I went to Marmette, and I joined this march, and it was a real life-changing event for me, not just why we were there and what we were doing, but walking day after day through some of the most beautiful parts of West Virginia, but also experiencing the real power that the coal industry still exerts on people's daily lives down there, and seeing these communities divided over this issue. Um, one of the things that I took away from that was that this is a real special place that has a real special history that that uh, we needed to preserve. And one of, one of the things that we talked about when we started the museum is that we wanted it to be a place that brought people together, whether they were uh, coal miner or not, whether they were union or non-union, because there's been a lot of division in these communities and 
So we we hoped that the the museum would be a place for people to come together, talk about this history, think about it, and um, in some ways celebrate it. What kinds of things can people find when they visit the museum? When people visit the museum, the first thing that they'll see is that, well, we're on Mate Street in historic downtown Mate One. And this is a town that certainly has changed over the years, uh, but you can still see the historic character of this town. You can imagine very easily what the town would look like in 1920 when the Battle of Mate One took place. And uh, we're almost all the way down the street, just down the street from the United Mine Workers Local 1440 Union Hall. The front of the museum has big vinyl coverings on the windows that are historic photographs of miners, including Bill Blizzard, who uh, led the march on Blair Mountain in 1921. And then when you enter the museum, we have a series of permanent exhibits that essentially tell the story of the company town, what it was like to live in the company town, and why there were tensions that led miners to want to organize. And as you make your way around the permanent exhibits, you'll learn more about the um, strike on Paint Creek and Cabin Creek in 1912 and 1913, the role of the Baldwin Phelps Detective Agency, the role of the chief of police, Sid Hatfield, in the town of Matewan. And it culminates in an exhibit about the Battle of Blair Mountain, which includes some uh, newsreel footage from 1921 that one of our board members, Kenny King, was able to uh, find, and he's made it widely available, including to the museum, so that we can show that on a loop. So those are some of the things that you see in just a very small space that we have there on Mate Street and Mate One. Why did you think that this history is really important to commemorate and um, and sort of preserve in this museum? The West Virginia Mine Wars are a really important chapter in the history of West Virginia, but also the history of the American labor movement. And in my mind, this is a, an important time period to look at because it really shows what happened when some of the worst excesses of capitalism were attempted to, to grind workers down into nothing. And these people organized oftentimes across ethnic and racial divisions, as well as across language barriers, and they mobilized their forces. They exhausted every avenue that they could in the courts, in the state government, to try to get their basic rights that that are guaranteed by the US Constitution and this so this is the story of ordinary people struggling against great odds and in this time period they failed largely because they didn't have allies in powerful places like the coal industry did at that time and so the state government the county governments and most of the town governments were aligned against them. 
but they were able to ultimately, through changes in the federal labor laws, get their rights to unionize, which helped them get their rights to free speech and freedom of assembly and a lot of other things that we take for granted. And then many of the veterans of these battles of the mine wars became leaders in the United Mine Workers, which helped win a lot of the things that we take for granted, like sick pay and vacation pay and pensions and so on. And uh, this is also important to people who live there. Uh, you, you don't have to talk to residents of Southern West Virginia too long before, especially the older generation, before they start talking about concerns of this history fading away and the importance of remembering these struggles and sacrifices. And so when we started the museum, we got so much positive feedback from so many people because people recognize the importance of this history. Um, you don't have to be an expert to know that it's important that we remember this violent chapter in U.S. history so that we don't repeat it. And we're living through a time right now where a lot of the things that these miners and their families fought for, the right to unionize, um, and all of the things that came from that are slipping away. West Virginia passed a right-to-work law that makes it harder to organize unions, and many of the things like the pensions that they won in the 1950s are starting to slip away as companies use bankruptcy laws to divest themselves of those liabilities, as they now call them. And so I think it's important for us to remember this period of, of struggle before unionization, as well as the, the time period after unionization, because we're, we may be entering a time where unions uh, nearly disappear. And so it's important for us to really study this history closely. We have a lot of events that the museum hosts outside of the museum, including on September 22nd, we're going to have something called a strike supper at the local 1440 Union Hall, and it's going to celebrate the diverse foodways of the coal camps in the early 1900s. And this is a great example of uh, celebrating the diversity of a group of people who came together despite their differences. And those are the kind of things that we like to, to commemorate. And we're also going to be at that event handing out the first ever Red Bandana Awards to, to four people that we want to recognize for their efforts over, in some cases, their lives, in some cases, the past year. And uh, they embody the spirit of the the miners who organized and rose up to, to claim their rights. So those are the kind of events that we like to have at the museum. And so that September 22nd event is one that the public is invited to, although tickets um, for the fundraiser cost $20 each. Great. And if folks do want to go, where can they find tickets? They can go to our website, wvminewars.com, and we've got a link to our strike supper event that will then show them how to get tickets for it. My name is Catherine Moore and I live in Fayette County, West Virginia, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Mine Wars Museum. I'm a writer 
and I'm working on a book right now uh, about the mine wars, um, a history book, but also um, a book that's looking at how the mine wars connect to present-day politics in southern West Virginia. Great. Um, I wonder if you could talk about sort of the very beginning of the idea for this museum and where that came from and who is involved in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it probably, um, you could probably trace it back to the March on Blair Mountain in 2011, um, because some of the people who ended up founding the museum met on that march. And, um, you know, we all have sort of a common um, passion and obsession, really, uh, about the history of Blair Mountain. And so following the March on Blair Mountain, there was a little museum founded in Blair, uh, West Virginia, at the base of the mountain. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't end up working out. And some of the people who founded that, um, you know, couldn't kind of shake this idea that there needed to be a place for people to come and honor this history. And so, um, a few people started talking and conversations led to other conversations and um, I came on board sometime around then. Um, but I think the underlying impetus for the museum was, you know, the well-known fact that there just hasn't been a place where people can come and uh, memorialize this history. And, you know, for my whole lifetime, people have sort of complained that, um, the mine wars has been, you know, underreported on, underwritten about, under talked about, and really been a little bit taboo in our um, little culture here. And so, I think the Mine Wars Museum, for all of us, is also trying to push back on um, that sense that this history uh, isn't being taught to children or isn't being um, voiced in our communities. And I think we're trying to make sure that that history is something that, you know, is fair game to talk about and puzzle through. And it's really complicated. And there's a lot of, you know, feelings still even 100 years later about it. And so I want, personally, our museum to be a place where people can um, can do that work of trying to make sense of what happened and, and our place in it. I'm curious. So m- many years ago when I was in college, I was also researching some of this history and trying in particular to find sort of evidence of work of of the roles of women during this time right because a lot of the Mm -hmm. history books that we have talk about the miners and talk about men I wonder if you um in writing your book or through this museum and the folks that you've met could speak at all to sort of like the role that women and folks who weren't um necessarily in the union or in the mines were playing during this really wild time in history in the coal fields? Yeah, absolutely. I'm like really happy you said that because, um, yeah, one of the things I'm really trying to do in my book is to bring out this whole other half of the story of the mine wars that I don't think has really been told very well, which is the story of how women participated. And you correctly point out that they were not permitted to be uh, union members, and of course they were not permitted to be um, minors at the time that all this was happening, but that in no way means that they were excluded from the events as they played out, and it doesn't mean that they weren't um, highly influential in the events as they played out. So women's workplace at this time was the coal camp. And so if we think about the mine wars as Um, a response in some ways to oppressive conditions within 
um, the coal camps of southern West Virginia, then women really are at the very heart of it because they are the women were the ones who were um, you know, most directly interacting with some of the systems of oppression that were um, you know, driving the mining families to fight back against the coal companies. And um, you know, we think about the company store as being kind of a locus of that. And women were the ones who were interacting most often with the company store and with um, the system of script that was, um, that was prevalent at the time. Um, they were the ones who were um, raising their children and, um, you know, um, trying to avoid their children going into the mines. Um, they were the ones who were, um, uh, you know, really quite terrified all the time that, you know, something was going to happen to their husbands underground. And um, if that were to happen, then, um, you know, family's primary breadwinner would be would be disappeared, and um, and the woman would would you know be up against a pretty pretty uphill battle. Um, so they bore a lot of the the kind of psychological burden, I think, of um, life in coal camps, as well as you know a lot of the very like concrete material burdens of what it meant to take care of you know oftentimes a very large family um, under the economic. Um, regime that that they were living in, um, and so I think the women in particular had a lot of um, a lot of uh, motivation to um, um, to change the conditions that they were living in, um, and you see a lot of times that the, it was the women who were um, encouraging their husbands, and in some t- in some cases, kind of berating them um, into or guilting them into, you know, standing up for themselves and trying to better their lot in life. But but women were directly involved in union activities, even though they couldn't be uh, members of the union. Um, During strikes, they picketed and they even, you know, attacked strike breakers. There's lots of accounts of women being the ones who would meet the trains of of strike breakers as they came in. And um, they were kind of on the front lines of trying to convince these workers to turn around and leave the strike zone. Um, They even occasionally participated in in gunfights. There were women who worked as union organizers in West Virginia, even though they weren't members of the union. Um, Women like Fanny Sellens, uh, who was jailed repeatedly and um, sent to prison and eventually murdered by mine guards for her unionist uh, activities. Um, Mother Jones was uh, someone who attempted to mentor and um, help women into the kind of career of becoming an organizer. There's there's accounts of, of her sort of coaching um, women of the Southern West Virginia coal fields into, into the, that role. Um, and there were, you know, Quite militant women among among these um, these families, you know, people like um, Ma Blizzard, Sarah Sarah Blizzard, who was known as Ma Blizzard. She was the mother of um, Bill Blizzard. Bill Blizzard, yeah. Um, she was Bill Blizzard's mother, and Bill Blizzard was the guy who eventually led the union unionist miners uh, into battle in Blair Mountain. She was the grandmother of Cecil Roberts, today the um, the president of the United Mine Workers, um, and you know she was among the her family was among the earliest union uh, fighters in the area. 
And she has this story that is um, uh, sort of famous within the folklore of, of mine wars, where after the uh, bull moose special came through, which was this armored train that shot up a, a tent colony during the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike. And after that train came through, she led a, a group of women uh, to pull up the railroad tracks so that the bull moose special couldn't return to the strike zone and threaten the families of the striking miners. Um, I've read accounts of women um, running guns and ammunition. There's this amazing lady named Willie Fish um, who was very active in the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike. And she was quite pregnant at the time. And so she was wearing these like big uh, puffy maternity clothes, which were perfect for hiding guns and ammunition. And so she tells this story in an oral history about um, hiding guns and, and bullets in her in her floppy clothes and, and walking them across the mountain um, to this kind of union safe house that was um, a point of distribution during that strike of, of weaponry and um, other, um, you know, other, other supplies. Um, women suffered quite a lot um, in some cases at the hands of um, mine guards who were um, pretty well known for harassing um, anyone anyone affiliated with the union. Um, there's a couple very extreme and horrible cases where um, women were assaulted by mine guards. And um, in my book, I'm, I'm writing a chapter about this woman named um, Anna Sevilla, who was an Italian woman. I think her actual name was Gianna Contenti Sevilla or something like this, but it was Americanized when she came over in 1908. And uh, during one of the battles of the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike, she was um, pregnant and she was kicked in the stomach by mine guards and lost her child and ended up going on to testify before the Senate um, Committee on Education and Labor about what happened to her, which was a very brave thing to do, I think. She barely spoke English, so she was testifying through an interpreter. But I'm trying to kind of reconstruct her life because she you know, appears at this moment in the Senate testimony, and her story is often cited as kind of, you know, the worst the worst example of, you know, um, mine guard brutality, um, but we don't really know much about her life. And so I'm trying to dig through um, the archival record and, and reconstruct some of the, some of the context for who she was and how she got there. And um, in a way it feels for me like I'm trying to, you know, sort of recover this lost role in some ways that, that, that women played um, during these during these conflicts, I think that let's see. Let me think about how I want to ask the question. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of curious since you're writing a book both about this history, but also about sort of what it means for our current moment. Um, I'm curious if you have any ideas of of whether there are things you've come across in your research, or even if you have some personal opinions as someone who cares a lot about this history. Of, of why this matters to our current moment in West Virginia, in Central Appalachia, in this country, in this kind of wild time in this world? Mm, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's kind of the central question I'm trying to answer in my book. And I don't know that I 
have a very clear answer right now. Um, right now I'm in the place of like, I'm seeing all these parallels, right. Or I'm seeing all these resonances between that moment a hundred years ago and this moment. And I don't quite know what they mean yet, but I do think that there is um, a lot of interesting echoing forward and echoing backward that's happening, um, um, you know, between these two, these two moments in time. And I'm really excited to, um, you know, keep drilling down and interrogating that, that resonance. Um, you know, I think <laughs> there was the moment, of course, when um, West Virginia's teachers went on strike this spring, and I was in the, the depths of writing about the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike at that time. And in particular, I was writing about the role of women in that strike, um, which I've really come to see as being the central role, I mean, a central role. Um, I really think that they were at the forefront of that fight. And of course, the overwhelming um, gender makeup of the the teacher strike was was women. And so I was going down to the Capitol and like interviewing these amazing women um, who were, you know, doing things like surrounding Governor Justice's SUV and like forcing him to talk to them about what was going on and basically kind of like, uh, you know, giving them an earful about um, how they thought, you know, he was misstepping and, and all this. And so I would, you know, be interviewing women like that and then like going back to read about, you know, people like Willie Fish who were, who was doing all this incredible brave stuff. Um, and just like thinking about the through threads of that and the, the legacy of that. And so I'm trying to connect those two things. I'm not quite there yet, um, but uh, stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. In this episode, we're celebrating the anniversary of the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain. Next, we'll hear an excerpt from Apple Shop's film Nimrod Workman to fit my own category. Nimrod participated in the Battle of Blair Mountain and was a proud Union miner. He talks and sings about this history in the following clip. This is a song I composed and went to the Blair Mountain Hill. Well, I'm going to that Hard Creek Mountain. Go on to old Blair Mountain Hill. I'm gonna fight for my union. Lord, I know it's Mother Jones's will. And I know that's Mother Jones's will. Well, uh, people were living in the town. <clears throat> Children sleeping upon the floor. While the thugs were rolling through their town, pouring kerosene in their mill, pouring kerosene in their mill. I'm going to old Hard Creek Mountain, although it's against my will. I'm going to fight for Mother June's union. I know that's Mother Jones's will. Yes, I know that's Mother Jones's will. <coughs> I'm pretty hoarse. Seems like I can't get it back. And it's all over coal mining. 
black lung. I'd like to do a lot of singing, but it looks like I'm just about over with it. Seems like I can't never get my voice straightened up to do any of it anymore. <clears throat> but there's one thing about it. I'm still a union man in my heart. If I don't have my name on the book, or if I don't get my painting, I guess I'm one of the stronger union men and one of as good a union men as he is in the world. I don't include nobody because I know what it means to people to be a real A number one, 100% union man. And if you're that, you won't down your brother. If you're that, you won't go over a picket line. If you're that, you won't scab again the other man. If you're that, you won't work for on union wages. And if you're that, 100% union man, and they part your brother, you won't go in his place and take his job. You'll never want to walk out with him until they put him back in pain. And you'll stay out till you win it. You won't work and you won't let nobody else if you're a 100% union man. So I thank you. It's the one thing you've heard the truth from the beginning to the end. The truth and the facts. I worked in the coal mines ever since 1913. Worked in the coal mines in the Union from 1924 to 1947 uh, at Chatteroy. Then I came to these mines here. This is an old drift of the Crystal Block Coal Company. Worked in here on conveyors in this mine here, going throughout the hall here. It's called Raw, owned by the Crystal Block Coal Company. Me and Ivan Moms would pull from two to three cuts on conveyors out here with a double B. Cut it with a double B and load it out on conveyors. They set this mine down here and went to the next mine up here at Low Beta. And I worked there to 1953. And I was sick and in the hospital in, in uh, 20 and 54. Worked there to 53 and 54. I got sick and was in the hospital. And then I left and went to Whitewood, Virginia. Worked 55 and 56 there and got so bad with my lungs that they had to bring me outside and bring me home and I never could go back in the mines no more to work. But this is one of the old mines right here. A drift that's cut out here that goes through here of the Raw Coal Company. Well, it's a Crystal Block Coal Company. Crystal Block people owned it. I think they sold it out. They took the charter. They took the charter of this place, and there was no union here for a while. And when they started it up again, they sold it out, and they wouldn't have a union here for a while. I don't know exactly who's running it now, but in the holler over here, they're running coal, and they're telling me they've got a local union. I don't know if they have or not. This place is one of the old places here where I hope to feed my family. Long in the last stand up, I'm working. Took back long. It began to bother me bad when I was working here. These mines here. <clears throat> this is the mine where the water run down my back and the boss put a piece of tin over my head for to drain the water off me before it come through the roof till I cut through from under a water safe. 
this is the place where that I come through and uh, come outside. My clothes be wet from the top of my head to the, down to the bottom of my feet and it would freeze in the ice. Sound like fire burn. My wife built up for me and take me a time to get my clothes sawed up and get them off of me. I think that's what caused me to have rheumatism, black lung, and everything else, working in places like this. And you can see this place for yourself, what it looks like in the coal mine, how that mud is, and water through there. It's that way all through these old coal mines. Wet, cold, places with dust in them at the face. It's you inhale that dust all the time. Forty-one years I worked in the coal mine. I've worked since I got married. From I got married in 1929, and I worked from 1929 all the way up till the union come out. I worked for two dollars and eighty cents and sixteen eighteen hours. After the union come out, I got union wages as it would raise. In 1933. I worked the Union Mines all the way up, and it was Union here when I worked here, Union at Low Beta, and Union at Jewel Ridge. Sing that song before I run out of film. Huh? Sing that song before I run out of film. <clears throat> Went to my place, and I looked in, the slate in the water up to my chin. They got the blues, they got the blues, they got the blues, Lord, Lord. Cold black mine and blue. Looked at my boss, and he looked sad. The worst dang place that I ever had. I got the blues, I got the blues, I got the blues, Lord, Lord. Cold black mine and blue. Well, he sent me to the office to look at the roll. Chilton counted up nine dollars in the hole. I got the blues, I got the blues, I got the blues, Lord, Lord. Cold black mine and blue. I was Herb on the tipo singing a song. Said, get gone, Herb, cause whips are coming on. You got the blues, you got the blues, you got the blues, Lord, Lord. Cold black mine and blue. Bascom Bowen's at the bottom, dipping up sand. Long come short, he says, I got another man. You got the blues, you got the blues, you got the blues, Lord, Lord. Cold black mine and blue. Hold the, the company, and the cut boss fired me because it wasn't working that water hole. He called up and sends me back. Told him I owed the company, and they couldn't fire me, and I was a good worker, and sent me back to him. They had to pump the water out of my place before I'd go back in it and put me back to work. As then we organized the union, had the union kind of cleaned up some of it. And this is one of the old mines right here that I worked in my last years in, in 1953. Wrong in 53, 52 and 53, I worked in these mines here, and 54 didn't work at all. 55 and 56, I worked in the union, the union mine at uh, Whitewood, Virginia. Fell out, took a fellow hole, and I fell, and they'd bring me home. I had black lung and a slip uh, disc in my back, and they never would let me work in the mine in the morning. I wouldn't sign up to talk about it. said I'd never work anymore in the mine. I was done for, and the bosses wouldn't have me, the companies wouldn't have me. And there wasn't anything they could do about it. And said the union couldn't make them work me. I was disabled and they had contract against it, so I didn't work no more. But I'm still fighting and looking for my union pension, and I'm entitled to it. I work the time, and I want it. And I won't quit staying until I get it, and if I don't never get it, I'll hate the man that knocked me out of it. That's all I got to say about it.
For the remainder of the show, we'll hear from Joe Stanley and Chuck Keeney with Friends of Blair Mountain, who've been working to add the battlefield site to the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, my name is Joe Stanley. I'm a retired Union coal miner at this point, and uh, I currently live at Pritchard, West Virginia, with my wife. Uh, I have three children, um, and uh, they're all, they've all, they're all out of the house. So, me and Sue are here in this big lo- uh, big house by ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> that probably takes some getting used to. It does. Yeah. And so, could you tell me a little bit about your connection to the? the Battle of Blair Mountain history and the, the work to kind of get that battlefield site preserved? Well, I've always known about Blair Mountain, and that's probably because I was born in Mingo County, and instead of going to the county seat of Mingo County, we normally went to Logan County, to the town of Logan, and we kind of grew up knowing more about Logan than we did about, you know, Mingo County, but... I was familiar with, you know, that they had fought a battle there. I wasn't as familiar as I should have been. And after my, uh, I was forced out of uh, the mining industry, I started reading more and more, and uh, I, thought it was a, I thought it was something everyone should know about. And uh, when the reenactment march came along, I decided to participate in it. And so why, why did you think that this was something everybody should know about? I think it's um, those those men and those women and those children that lived in those coal camps and worked for those companies were at the least indentured servants, and they didn't want them to have any protections. They used a private police force. They didn't even pay them an actual money. When you worked a week and were with a high probability of losing your life, you got paid with a bottle cap that was a piece of metal that had a company a logo on it, and you had, the only place you could spend it was the company store. And you had to buy your tools. You They provided you housing that you had to pay for. And uh, if you were killed or injured and couldn't report for work, there was no worker compensation systems. There was no you know, health insurance system, there was nothing that, uh, and if you, if you become disabled or unable to work, if you could not provide another member of your family to go in and do that job, your job in the mines or do another job in the mines that you were able to do, then they just moved your family out on the street and they didn't give a hoot whether you starved to death, your family starved or anything else. And you know, there are a lot of things that are coming to life that they did in those communities to the children and to the women in particular that are disgraceful. And our government knew that those conditions existed. Our state government condoned all of those conditions. Our legislature, our governor, they, they condoned all the con- those conditions. And I think a lot of those boys that came back from the war, World War One, said, you know, I'd rather die than live under, under these conditions or have my family live under these conditions if I were killed. So I think they just made it up their mind that, you know, I, you know this, ain't, there, this is no life, and I would rather die than live this way or have my family live this way. And I think that's why they marched and 
I, I truly wish that they had taken it farther, but they did. Can you say more about that? What 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 do you wish had happened? I wish they, uh, when the U.S. government declared, uh, when the U.S. government brought in federal troops, and the U.S. government assisted, you know, states and companies dropping bombs on our coal miners or attempting to drop bombs on our coal miners, I wish they had just dug in and fought the war. Those boys were all, majority of them were ex-military. They had they had just gotten out of the battlefields of France, and they knew how to fight wars. And I think that. Even though they they did the strike and, you know, they marched to Logan County when the federal troops were called in, they surrendered because they couldn't understand. It was hard for them to comprehend that here they'd just gotten back from fighting for America, and now they're fighting their own government. And I wish they had just dug in because as a result of what happened, you know, it was a very oppressive situation for the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Because they lost. And when they lost, you know, as you know, a lot of them were indicted for treason, tried for treason. Uh, They were banned. A lot of them were beaten to death. A lot of them disappeared. Uh, It's hard to say what happened to a lot of those men. Yeah. And their families. Mm -hmm. What do you think about, so recently this summer, uh, the battlefield has been put back on the National Registry of Historic Places, um, why do you think it's important that that site is on that list? Well, I'm a member of the Friends of Blair Mountain Board, and we did a couple of site visits that challenged some of the uh, <laughs> uh, the legitimacy and the mining activity that was occurring on the site. Uh, when we got there, we discovered that they had infringed on the um, the battlefield on 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 several violations that were not enforced or protected according to the agreements that we felt were in place. But um, you know there was uh, quite a bit of research done uh, by uh, good scholars and local scholars that said this is the battlefield. This is what it encompasses. The approximately 1,600 acres. This is where the artifacts lie. Even though we've been have been told for the last approximately twenty years that all oh, everything's been disturbed, but and when we did the site inspections, it confirmed our uh, suspicions that they had incurred and done damage to the battlefield. But there is a lot of it that's still intact, and it has never been used or uh, allowed to be used for historical documentation or possibly like a lidar. Uh, mapping or to show what actually occurred and to recover the artifacts that are surely to be there because this was a major battle. And even though there's been a lot of artifacts discovered, those were just preliminary examinations that said these areas contain artifacts. And um, I would like to see and like for West Virginia and the nation to understand how important it was that these people stood up to tyranny uh, and said, you know, we want a better life. To me, this is where the backbone for uh, the middle-class Americans came from. Okay, my name is Chuck Keeney. Uh, I'm a history professor uh, at uh, Southern Community College. Uh, Lou Martin and I, by the way, were students together at WVU uh, in the doctoral program. That's how we met, uh, in fact. Um, 
And uh, I've been the uh, president of Friends of Blair Mountain up until, uh, oh, I think last year. Kenny King is now the president. I'm the current vice president. Uh, and I'm a founding member of the Mind Wars Museum. And I'm um, the great-grandson of Frank Keeney, who was president of the UMWA uh, during the Mine Wars and, of course, was charged with treason and murder after the Battle of Blair Mountain. Okay, great. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us about Friends of Blair Mountain. What is that group? Friends of Blair Mountain was formed in 2010 after the delisting of the battlefield. Uh, the listing of the battlefield was a really long, uh, arduous process, and it began as early as 1991 when Kenny King, a local from Logan County, began just searching the area around the Blair Mountain and the and Spruce Fork Ridge, which you know extends uh, northwest past the mountain. Uh, with a metal detector, then he began to find all these enormous amounts of artifacts. Uh, we're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of shell casings, uh, buried guns, uh, defensive entrenchments. And he, Kenny was not a professional archaeologist, uh, and so he kept trying to get uh, the battlefield nominated for the National Register. But his uh, work was discounted because he was not a professional. And I should mention that Kenny also had a grandfather that fought at Blair Mountain. So. Uh, eventually, he was able to en uh, enlist uh, help from uh, Harvard Ayers at Appalachian State University, who's now retired, and uh, Barbara S. Mewson at West Virginia University. And they, uh, Harvard came and did a, a brief archaeological survey of a small portion of the battlefield. And then after that, they were able to successfully get the nomination. But after it would, became a part of the National Register in October, or in March 2009, March 2009 is when it became on the National Register. Then the uh, coal industry, uh, represented by Jackson Kelly, the most powerful law firm in West Virginia, protested the uh, listing of the battlefield and produced uh, a list of landowners that they said uh, where the majority of the landowners objected to the placing of Blair Mountain on the National Register. Now, according to federal law, according to the National Historic Preservation Act, if a majority of landowners on a property that is uh, nominated for listing, if the majority of landowners disagree or do not want it on the National Register, then it has to be either taken off or, or not listed. And uh, the State Historic Preservation Office had already uh, solicited uh, comments from all the landowners, but now the coal companies suddenly had a new list. And uh, further research has shown that, you know, there were dead people that uh, signed this coal company list. Uh, one such individual had been dead for 25 years, uh, but uh, suddenly they were back alive and protesting the battlefield. Uh, and uh, nonetheless, the state government accepted the coal company list, forwarded that to the keeper of the National Register, and then Blair Mountain was delisted at the end of the year uh, in December 2009. So the following year, Friends of Blair Mountain was formed as a group with the specific intent of preserving the Blair Mountain battlefield. And since that time, uh, we helped organize uh, the protest march in 2011. And uh, from that time forward, we've been involved in numerous activities, which has slowly inched us towards 
uh, permanent preservation towards the site. Great, thank you. That was that was really helpful history. Um, I think um, I think first I, after that, I want to ask you why it was important for this site to be put on the national registry. What does that um, status provide, and and why is this site in particular something that needed to be preserved in that way? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. First and foremost, however, is that the coal industry wanted to destroy the site with the practice of mountaintop removal coal mining. There are three surface mining permits which overlap onto the battlefield area. Now, we have to understand the battlefield, it's called the Battle of Blair Mountain, but the battle was much larger than Blair Mountain itself. Okay, uh, and this is actually common for battles throughout history. You have a lot of battles that are named after a mountain, but the battle itself is much larger. In this particular case, the the battlefield extends for over 10 miles. Uh, And so it begins at Blair Mountain, but then stretches northwest along ridgelines for another 10 miles. And uh, there's a lot of coal underneath those ridgelines and underneath Blair Mountain itself. And the coal industry, specifically arch coal and alpha natural resources, wanted uh, to use mountaintop removal to blow up the site. Uh, putting Blair Mountain on the National Register of Historic Places protects that acreage from surface mining because in the West Virginia State Code, a place that is on the National Register cannot be surface mined, which is uh, one of the reasons the industry fought so hard to get it off the list. And, of course, it's one of the reasons we've been fighting so hard to put it back on. It's also significant because... Uh, we want to show that you know this is this is a history that has of course been ignored, and I'm sure that others have elaborated on this. And it's a history that the industry wants buried. At the time that Blair Mountain was delisted, uh, Don Blankenship was CEO of Massey Energy, and he threatened to sue every member of the State Historic Preservation Office after it was put on the National Register. And Don Blankenship is of course known as the individual singly most responsible for the demise of the UMWA in central Appalachia. And the last thing the industry wants is some kind of monument to unionism. In fact, the Speaker of the West Virginia House uh, just uh, two weeks ago on a uh, radio program referred to the teachers' union as a communist organization. Uh, This was, of course, right after the big teacher strike. So there is still open hostility towards unionism uh, within West Virginia and central Appalachia. And uh, there is also enormous hostility from the powers that be towards memorializing something uh, that, quite frankly, does not paint the coal industry in a very positive light. And I guess um, so. So in June of this year, right, the the site was put back mm-hmm. on the national registry. Could you talk about Could you talk about that most recent phase of sort of the battle to get it listed? Yeah, it's been it's been a long, difficult road since the 2011 protest march, and it's much more complicated than just the coal. Um, They were using other methods than just surface mining in order to try to destroy the site, uh, which included timbering, uh, certain areas of the battlefield where they knew that there were entrenchments. Uh, It also included a National Guard base that Alpha Natural Resources wanted to help uh, build uh, for the National Guard on one of the three surface mining permits 
This would include a 4,000-foot runway and a 7,000-foot runway to, to train Air Force and Army troops uh, in special ops for anti-terrorism tactics. And we had uh, to go to the National Guard. I had to meet with the agenda, uh, uh, Major General James Hoyer. Uh, we had to go before the West Virginia Surface Mine Board on two occasions in order to try to protect the site and prevent uh, a runway from being built that would have blasted 50 acres of the battlefield. And one of the things that the companies were, were trying to do is they were trying to use this base to play upon people's local feelings of patriotism to say that this was necessary for national defense, and that was going to give them another way to try to uh, destroy the battlefield. And uh, we fought them in local courts in the state, and then we also fought them in federal court. Now, the federal court case uh, was helped out through the Sierra Club, and there are a number of other uh, organizations on that uh, court case, from Friends of Blair Mountain to OVEC, uh, Keepers of the Mountains. Um, my goodness, I don't know. There's quite a few uh, of these various grassroots organizations that joined together for this lawsuit to put it back on the register. Ultimately, we won that federal lawsuit in 2016, and the uh, the judge, Reggie B. Walton, uh, claimed that the keeper's decision to delist uh, was unsubstantiated uh, and uh, was basically ridiculous. And so he vacated that decision and remanded it back to the keeper for a new decision. The keeper's office then did about two years' worth of research uh, independent research on the landowners, and on June the 27th, they put it back on the National Register. Now, just because it's on the National Register, as I've said, it has that legal protection. But as anyone who knows Central Appalachia well, simply because it's supposed to ha be protected, that doesn't mean that it will be. And so the regulatory agencies that are involved in all of this have to step up to the plate and have to have the coal companies modify those permits and have to declare the rest of the battlefield unsuitable for mining. And Friends of Blair Mountain has already submitted requests to West Virginia DEP and OSMRE, the Office of Surface Mining Regulation and Enforcement, in order to get those next steps taken. Because even though it's on the National Register right now, those permits are still there. And until those permits are officially modified, there are still threats to the battlefield. And we're working right now with West Virginia DEP to get that changed. So I guess my, my last kind of question for you is um, a combination. Is there is there something we missed that you think people should know? And or what do you feel like people uh, misunderstand about either this history or the fight to get this site uh, preserved? Uh, well, the fight was uh, really tough. I mean, uh, particularly when we found out about this National Guard base, it put us up against the state government, the military, and three multibillion-dollar corporations. So uh, these were long odds, even though this was a very important historic site. I think that um, – and members of Friends of Blair Mountain, we've had our mail opened. We've had our computers hacked. Uh, one of our members, Joe Stanley and Ann Kenny King, were threatened with a gun by an uh, out-of-state uh, or out-of-uniform state trooper. Uh, we've been threatened with violence, and then so it's it's to be understood that you can uh, win 
against these forces, and we won uh, without civil disobedience. We won with the exception of 2011 without massive protests, and uh, we were able to be victorious in really saving a, a huge section of land from mountaintop removal and preserving an important piece of history. So I think it's important to know that grassroots organizations can be successful even where big corporations have an enormous stranglehold over the politics, the culture, and the economy of a region. Uh, on the other hand, it ta- it's, a, it's a price to pay. I mean, you have to really be willing to fight. And uh, I think if, if I was giving advice to other members of grassroots organizations, the biggest thing I would say is you have to understand that you're running a marathon and not a sprint. And there's never going to be one action or one protest or one event that is going to lead to a home run hit. It is something that takes uh, a long time. And that's also the case with the history. We have been able over the last seven years through Friends of Blair Mountain and through the Mind Wars Museum and the great work that the folks there have done is to uh, change the conversation about Blair Mountain and about our labor history past and to bring it into the forefront. In 2018, when thousands of teachers were on strike, many of them were wearing red bandanas. And while I don't think that what we did influence the the uh, the onset of the strike. I think without us inserting Blair Mountain into the conversation, people wouldn't have been wearing red bandanas. They wouldn't have been drawing on that history for inspiration. And so uh, I think that we've been successful in, in changing the narrative and changing the conversation. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk. To learn more about the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, you can find them online at wvminewars.com. Music on this episode is Charlie Stamper with a tune called Cattle in the Cane from his June Apple record, Glory to the Meeting House. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can visit our website at wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk on SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.